The Rockefeller Foundation advances new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on Twitter at RockefellerFDN. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Despite a strong economy, working families in America are struggling. The cost of housing, childcare, and health care continue to rise, and many families are finding it hard to make ends meet. On February 26th, the Washington Post brought together key government officials, academics, and advocates for an in-depth look at the plight of working families and low-income workers in the U.S. Wealth inequality has always existed, but the extremes we see today are dramatic. In 2018, the richest 10% of Americans owned 70% of the country's wealth. In this segment, we look at the big picture of what's driving economic inequality in the U.S., including the unique challenges facing low-income workers and how race and zip code affect prosperity. Let's listen. Good morning. I am Eugene Scott. I'm a political reporter with The Fix, a political analysis blog here uh, at The Washington Post, and we're here to discuss the wealth gap. This morning, I have with me Ryan Bourne uh, from the Cato Institute, uh, Dr. Sandy Darity from Duke University, uh, Janelle Bird, who is the director of the Thurgood Marshall Institute at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and entrepreneur and investor Melissa Bradley. We're here this morning to talk about this current wealth gap and the big picture of economic inequality and specifically how it relates to the 2020 uh, presidential election. But before we begin, uh, I want to remind our audience to tweet your questions to me using the hashtag postlive, and I'll get them here on my iPad uh, if we get through my questions first. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's certainly begin and get engaged. And so, Ryan, um, why is the wealth gap growing so significantly, so dramatically in the U.S. right now? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that economists disagree on the scale of which wealth inequality is increasing. Um, a lot of the work produced by economist Thomas Piketty and, and some economists associated with him seem to think that wealth inequality has gone up a lot over the past 30 to 40 years, nearly a doubling of the wealth share of the top 1%. Um, other economists come to a bit more sanguine um, conclusions that it's increased by six percentage points or whatever. I don't think anybody um, though any economist doubts that wealth inequality has increased. The key question is, is this a good metric by which to judge the health of an economy? And I would argue that it isn't. And the reason for that, one reason, is if you look internationally, the level of wealth inequality in the US is extraordinarily similar to the level of wealth inequality in Russia and the level of wealth inequality in Denmark, two countries that have very, very different social outcomes and in terms of quality of life and a whole range of other things in terms of how well the poor do. In Russia, wealth inequality is high because of systemic corruption and cronyism. In the US, I think there's a combination of a multitude of different issues, but some entrepreneurs are able to become incredibly wealthy uh, through the economic system that we get providing goods and services that people need. And in Denmark, paradoxically, wealth inequality is high because there are big redistributive programs. And big redistributive programs, whilst closing the income inequality gap, actually tend to widen wealth inequality because they um, both deter saving among the middle classes and actually lessen the need to save privately. So we have to be very careful here when we're discussing this issue. I think wealth inequality has gone up um, modestly to significantly. Uh, whether that's the right metric for assessing the health of the economy 
is another matter. I'd, I'd argue that what we should be looking at instead is both opportunity and the cost of living, particularly for poor households, and that's where my focus as a researcher has been. Dr. Darity, what are your thoughts about that? So I agree that a lot of our focus does need to be on uh, issues concerning income disparities, but I think that wealth is actually more important uh, and I think it's more important for a number of reasons. I, I think, first of all, uh, wealthier families are in a position to substitute for income losses in a way that less wealthy families cannot. So you might lose income as a consequence of uh, a loss of a job, or you might have a family that's confronted with a medical emergency, and wealthier families are better able to cope with those kinds of circumstances. Councilwoman Kendra Brooks was just talking about the kinds of obligations that she has for other family members at both ends of the age spectrum, and wealthier families are better able to cope with that type of circumstance. Wealthier families can provide their kids with a college education that's debt-free. Uh, wealthier families also have the capacity to be more engaged in the political process in a society in which money matters in the, in the process of engaging in electoral politics. And so, as a consequence, I think wealth inequality is a very good metric of the degree of disparity that exists in the society in terms of opportunity for participation in the full scope of American life. And I will say this, regardless of whether or not you make international comparisons, the degree of wealth inequality in the United States today, where 0.1% of the nation's wealth distribution possesses more than 20% of the nation's wealth is a degree of inequality that is similar to what existed during the Great Depression. And so that's a change that has taken place in the United States over time. It's a restoration of the type of inequality we had in the 1930s, and that's very dangerous. Janelle, Dr. Darity spoke about how different groups experience emergencies differently based on uh, their wealth and their financial health. Um, we know that people of color in the U.S. are significantly more likely to feel the financial strain of housing and uh, lack of necessities when it comes to health insurance. They bring in less monthly income when compared to whites. When you think of this, do you think of any particular ways in which we can close the gap? Well, yes, there, there are lots of uh, things that can be done. Uh, and I think it starts with, particularly when you talk about the racial wealth gap, because there's a wealth gap generally, yeah. and then there's a racial wealth gap. Uh, when you talk about, for example, the black-white racial wealth gap, uh, we have to start with what are the origins of it and some of the key components. What drives that gap? What has driven it? And if we look historically, uh, you know, and, and we, we, we look historically, it starts with, with slavery, and you come on up over the generations through Jim Crow and uh, all of the uh, practices of the 20th century. In particular, people would certainly highlight redlining and the impacts of that. And what's happened with housing in the U.S. is a critical component of the racial wealth gap. So we have to, I think, look hard at housing and look at housing segregation, because what redlining drove was not only uh, a, a lesser investment in uh, black people, a lesser subsidy given from the government to black people than to white people uh, in the housing market, but it also drove segregation. So we have a very segregated society, which did not occur organically. Right. This was driven by government and state policy. 
we are still very segregated. And then when you add, when you layer that with wealth and income disparities, uh, you'll see that we have, um, I would say, a gross uh, concentration of race and poverty in the Afri African American community that you do not, do not see in the <coughs> white community. And so those are significant factors in terms of what we need to look at uh, in terms of devising strategies to try to address the wealth gap. And then you turn to strategies, all right? So let's look at uh, uh, what's happening with affordable housing. Let's look at what's happening with public housing that's been available, housing subsidies, housing choice vouchers, uh, uh, low-income tax credit, um, low-income housing tax credit programs. Some of these programs, the housing voucher program, the LIHTC program, these are programs which have significant uh, ability to change some of the trajectory here, uh, but we haven't funded them sufficiently. Yeah. So we need to look at, at, at the, that's just beginning to peel back. Yeah. I, I mean, I really haven't gotten right. started, but I know our time <laughs> is limited, so I, I'll stop with that. Well, you did mention income disparities, and I wanted to talk to Melissa about that. A lot of the conversation we have coming out of government, particularly the White House right now, is touting low unemployment rates for black Americans, low unemployment rates for women. Um, how have working people and communities of color, how have women fared in this uh, economy that's largely viewed as a very healthy one? Well, I think to, to the points made earlier, health is relative depending on who the patient is. Right. And if the patient looks like me, then I would say we're not doing well. And I do think that this complexity of race and class has created lots of myths around who is doing well and who isn't, depending on what your points of comparison are. 40% of Americans cannot afford an emergency of $400. 22% would say they're probably gonna have to miss a bill over the next three months. Those are considered liquid asset poor. So the majority of people are struggling and struggling at different levels. And when you add the racial ends in 57% of us are liquid asset poor and tend to be so more consistently. A single black woman makes a half a cent for every dollar that a white person makes. So when I hear statistics and certainly living here in DC, we hear a lot of them that says the economy is doing well. I'm very concerned for whom. If you think about the tax cuts that were mentioned on earlier panels, the idea for those kind of strategies and you think about interest rate cuts is that we're allowing dollars to be reinvested by companies into job creation. In the case of America, the majority of companies took that money and reinvested in shareholder buyback. So the wealthiest group got even wealthier. And those who are working hourly jobs who are now become 1099 employees remain some of the most vulnerable. And so I think the issue of income inequality is extremely important for all races. But certainly when you think about African Americans, coupled with the fact that we already know based on stories that many outstanding publications have done, our cost of living is already higher because we don't own homes. We had a 40% drop in home ownership and rental rates are outrageous. Just try to live anywhere in the District of Columbia. If you think about, if you happen to be a homeowner, we know that vicious cycle of redlining, that you're spending more. And so the reality is, is that regardless of the health and what that aggregate number says, individuals are truly struggling. If you think about entrepreneurs, at Georgetown I have the privilege to be a professor in the business school, and we did a study that said it costs $250,000 more at the very least for a person of color to start the same exact business as their white male peer. So we have to recognize that while it may seem that things are well, for individuals in certain communities, the persistence from slavery till now has allowed 
about a lack of equity in terms of our ability to advance. You mentioned income, and, and Ryan, I wanted to have a bit of a talk about the minimum wage. Um, should there be a federal minimum wage? Like, should the power lie in the states? Uh, can one size fit all here? Well, I think there are big risks with increasing the minimum wage to a very, very high level. Economists seem to agree these days that if a, if a minimum wage is set modestly, the imp overall impact on unemployment doesn't seem to be uh, that significant, though certain groups, particularly very, very low skill groups, young workers in particular, it can have some uh, adverse consequences on the job opportunities that they're going to get. And certainly in an age where we're seeing investments in automation of jobs, um, it, you know, it's not clear to me why, in effect, you'd want to kind of subsidize automation by making uh, low skilled labor more uh, expensive. Uh, to the extent that we have minimum wages, I think it makes sense for them to be set at the state and local level, where at least there's uh, more likelihood of politicians, uh, regulators setting them with a view to the impact on the local labor market. But look, my whole wo uh, work at Cato really has been trying to shift this debate. Often when we talk about issues to do with poverty, we focus on income and wealth all the time. And what really matters to people is how far that income and wealth can go in meeting the needs of a decent life. Um, and I think too much focus in politics is put on the minimum wage and on redistributive spending. And actually there's a vast range of government policies from zoning and land use planning laws, from how we regulate childcare, from uh, what we do in terms of uh, tariffs and protections that raise the, the cost of food and clothing and footwear, things that disproportionately affect people on low incomes and African-American uh, communities as part of that. And I think we need a much bigger focus in thinking about poverty by looking at actually how far can income and wealth go in getting people to a decent life. And if we reform those areas and had a government approach which at first did no harm, uh, then perhaps we wouldn't need to always think about ways to correct problems that we see through further income transfers or through raising the minimum wage. We could achieve a living wage through lowering the cost of living rather than raising the nominal wage rate. Speaking of meeting basic needs and the challenges of that, Dr. Darity, some argue that driving up wages could make uh, you know, getting these basic goods very much more expensive. Um, the, the cost will fall disproportionately on the poor, on people uh, with low income or workers themselves. What, what are your thoughts of that argument and, and specifically perhaps uh, the economic impact of like a $15 a federal So let wage? me angle into that slightly in a slightly different way. I want to make a sharp distinction between income and wealth. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about the minimum wage, we're talking about an income impact. Right. We're not talking about any significant impact on the wealth position of families or households. So the minimum wage is something that I think is, is overstated uh, in terms of its importance, but for slightly different reasons from the reasons that you emphasize. So if an individual doesn't have a job at all, the effective minimum wage is zero. In addition, the minimum wage does not guarantee a sufficient num number of hours of work to ensure that people will receive an adequate benefits package. So I've been a proponent of an alternative to 
the minimum wage as a mechanism for trying to set a floor on the compensation that workers receive in American society. I've been an advocate for a number of years of a federal job guarantee, which is an idea that arose in the 1940s in, Fed, in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights, uh, which we now are talking about as an Economic Bill of Rights for the 21st century. Federal job guarantee would mean that every American adult would be assured of having employment in the United States, and that employment would be provided by the federal government. So any individual could turn to the federal government and say, I want a job, in the event that they cannot find adequate employment in the private sector. What would this mean? The federal government would ensure that every American would have a wage that would be sufficient to put them above the poverty line and provide them with a benefits package that would be comparable to the benefits package that is available for all American uh, civil servants at the present moment. What would that do in terms of private sector compensation? It would require the private sector to at least match the minimum package that's offered by the federal government. And so it would push up the floor on the compensation for all Americans. So we wouldn't necessarily need a minimum wage because that would effectively compensate for that kind of strategy. Uh, and we would also be in a position to conduct a set of services for the American public that are not adequately provided today through the federal job guarantee. So I'm a public sector employment advocate in the context of the provision of public sector opportunities for employment for every single American. And so speaking of employment in public sector and the private sector, I want to talk about racial bias in the workplace. Um, and, and Janelle, how does that impact inequality uh, b between white Americans and people of color? And what are some of the opportunity gaps that stem from racial bias in the workplace? Well, um, I'm going to take a little liberty because there are two points I want to add to my sure. last answer just because I didn't get them in and I should okay. have. One is we need to enforce the Fair Housing Act and the fair housing laws. Uh, ongoing discrimination in the housing uh, market is uh, alive and well. Many people probably saw the article in the New York Times uh, a few months ago about Long Island where mm -hmm. there was a test done by Newsday with testers and uh, it, it just confirms what we all already know. So I just did not want to let that um, uh, slip off the could, could I throw could something else in? Certainly. Please? Yeah. I, I just want to say there's no such thing as unskilled labor. There's labor that is performed by people who do not have educational degrees like many of us on this stage, but that does not mean they are not skilled. And so I just, I just wanted to emphasize that. I don't like that phrase, yeah. unskilled labor. I, I, I didn't use that phrase. I said low skills. But. I don't believe it's low skills. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but I know the, the point you made about the Housing Act was important because I feel like a lot of the conversation about redlining that's happening in the current presidential election implies that this is something that uh, ended and happened once upon a time. No. Yeah. Uh, it, it, well, redlining in the form in which it <laughs> occurred through the Homeowners Loan right. Corporation, FHA, Veterans Administration starting in the 30s, it probably ended in the, in the, in the mid-60s, but the effects of that Housing redlining 
are right. ongoing and cumulative. I mean, in a, in a study we just did, we showed how the redlining in New Orleans, you can track that to the health effects sure. by those same redlining jurisdictions. And you can see that people who were in the areas that were designated for African Americans are trailing by about 10 years in uh, life expectancy and those in the white areas are exceeding. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, significantly mm -hmm. uh, uh, by about 10 years. And so there's a huge uh, health effect as well from redlining. Then we had the reverse redlining uh, that came with the housing crisis where those same communities, which were credit poor, they were credit starved uh, because of discrimination, that there was a, a, a shortage of available funding for those communities. And so when the financial services industry realized that there was equity in those homes and there were folks who they actually could target for loans, uh, they targeted those communities uh, uh, disproportionately with credit excuse me, predatory loans, and these were high-cost loans to people who uh, over 50%, for African-Americans, over 50% of those who got those high-cost loans during the crisis period, the, the lead-up to the crisis, could also qualified for prime loans. Right. But they were targeted with these high-cost loans. And where did that leave people? That left them in a position where when the crisis came and the economy crashed, they were at risk and they were disproportionately delinquent, defaulting, and foreclosed on. And so they lost all their wealth because that's where most, most people hold their wealth yeah. uh, in their homes. So that, that, that uh, aspect of the crisis and redlining, uh, the segregation and the segregation of our society is still significant and a significant component. Mm -hmm. With respect to the, the uh, job market and racial, uh, bias. racial bias yeah. in the job market, uh, as a society, we know that racial bias is alive and well, and we've seen that a lot of the efforts to try to affirmatively address it uh, uh, have um, uh, been uh, challenging. Uh, some of it's implicit bias, where people may not realize that they're actually biased in the way in which they're acting, hiring, uh, assessing, ass providing assignments, or uh, um, um, uh, paying people at, in their jobs, but then there's also overt bias as well. And so what we see is we still are challenged in that space, like the rest of the space that we work in and live in, whether it's healthcare, housing, employment, policing, criminal justice system, that racial bias has a real and impactful uh, and, and negative impact, negative effect on uh, the African American community. And the uh, way I would say that we, uh, we continue to fight against this is by bringing our society together more than we are. Living separately does mean that we don't know who they are and what, they, what they're doing, or maybe we don't trust them and we don't have the same expectations, or we don't realize that they actually can do a good job. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that we have to continue to enforce the uh, 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 Title VII of the Civil Rights Act mm -hmm. uh, uh, that bars uh, discrimination in, in employment, and we have to continue to push employers to do far better than they're doing on this front. You'll still see growth stratification when you look at, particularly in some of the higher wage uh, sectors in terms of uh, hiring of uh, African Americans, women, uh, Latinos, Asians, there's still a lot, a long way to go. Especially when it comes to management. 
That's what I meant, right. in the upper right. income sectors, yes. Yeah, and so Melissa, you work with a lot of uh, women and people of color, especially at the early stages of mm -hmm. starting their careers, yep. um, particularly in the area of entrepreneurship. What are some of the biggest challenges you see black women specifically <laughs> facing? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> so I think one is, they're starting from a negative point, not only based on the research that I found that it costs a quarter of a million dollars more, but where most entrepreneurs find the assets to be able to start a business is from home ownership or from wealth or from stock ownership, which most black women don't have access to because they haven't had the income that's generated the wealth that's provided the economic security. It's an important. So a lot of attention being paid to how well the stock market is doing or not doing. When, when, when only 10% yeah. of most folks, you know, the wealthy people own stocks, the middle class <laughs> own homes. Black people own nothing. We don't even own our own narrative most of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's important though because when you have large companies taking their tax cuts and paying back their shareholders and only 25% of new jobs being created in the bottom 60% of zip codes, it speaks to just a lack of employment opportunity. Right. The bias isn't even allowed to happen because there are no jobs. Right. And then you add on low education, poor education in our communities, STEM coming in as supported or subsidized, but not a real commitment. But I think this question about entrepreneurship is extremely important because 40% of white men, there's a decline in entrepreneurship, 40% amongst white men. So the savior who is gonna create all these new jobs is not there. The majority of new jobs are being created by black women. African-American women are creating jobs six times their white male peers. That's significant because they are now the job creators. Entrepreneurship amongst black Americans is 20%. It is 12% among white Americans. The problem is we don't have the same amount of zeros at the end because of lack of access to capital, affordable capital. We are charged an average of one and a half times more on a loan than a white person starting a business, and that's actually allowed, which is problematic. But what's most significant as we think about the demographic shifts and the fact that people who look like me are about to be the new majority, and I realize that scares people, if black businesses have been invested on par or in parity with white businesses, we would have 570,000 new businesses by black folks, $150 billion in economic uplift, and that's about a million new jobs. And that's significant because black businesses hire people of color. So when you think about the historic disinvestment in our communities and this demographic shift, we are about to be negative net worth because of the racism and the sexism that has existed and the fact that as a finance person, we have underinvested in what is possibly the greatest asset in this country that is gonna leave all of us asset poor and embarrassed on the world stage. You're talking a bit, uh, Melissa, about disinvestment in communities. And, and Ryan, I, I hope you could talk a bit here about like how inequality and poverty are linked and what impact that has on a community. Well, it's not clear to me they are always linked, but clearly in, in the in the sense of talking about the African-American community, you'd be, no, nobody could deny looking at the huge wealth gap that does exist between uh, African-American and white household families, which is around 10, scale of 10, uh, 10 times more wealth in the average white, in the median white household than the median uh, African-American household right now. I don't think anybody could deny that, um, in part at least, that that is a result of historic uh, issues of slavery and racism. 
I think looking at the scale of those numbers, it's just impossible to come to, to any other conclusion. The, the real question is then, well, what to do about it? Because um, uh, clearly this is a politically very difficult issues. I know um, uh, various people have talked about the issue of reparations. That's a very wrenching question. It throws up a huge range of questions about uh, who should finance reparations, who should receive reparations. It's very difficult. So I think, you know, in terms of political feasibility, what I'd want to see is, I think we, we have a moral duty to actually uh, reform and change policies in areas where we clearly can do something with a degree of political will. Uh, so housing and zoning laws, I think, is absolutely key. We need to make it easier to, to build homes in areas where people want to live, and that will have an effect of, of uh, making housing more affordable um, more broadly, but especially in cities that are highly productive and which are generating jobs and growth and opportunity. I think we need criminal, further criminal justice reform. Uh, I think that's absolutely key. School choice, I think, is a big issue. I think we need to uh, liberate people from being condemned to poor public schooling in, in particular um, areas. And we need, do need to make it easier, uh, look at some of the banking regulations and things to make it easier for financial inclusion and for um, poorer households, African-American households in, in, in many cases, to be able to, to save and invest. If we can do all of those things, uh, then I do think you would see a closure of that gap. Where that gap would end up and how much can be explained by these, well, as I regard them, policy mistakes, I'm not sure. But I think that should be the area that we're starting from. Dr. Darity, you were one of the various people who talked about reparations. I've, I've yeah. quoted you quite a bit <laughs> in my work. Um, when you think about uh, ways to address the racial wealth gap um, and, and through the lens of reparations, like what's one of the most effective steps you think can be taken immediately? Well, I want to thank Ryan for introducing reparations into the conversation. <laughs> um, so, uh, I've done a substantial amount of work on this topic, particularly uh, in conjunction with my partner, Kirsten Mullen, and we have a new book on reparations that will be available in April called From Here to Equality. In the final chapter, we try to sketch how you might actually execute a reparations program. Uh, I think one of the critical things that we have to recognize is the magnitude of the racial wealth gap. And I think we've talked about the racial wealth gap here, but I don't think we've offered any numbers to give people a sense of the scale of that disparity. So if you uh, were to examine the American population as a whole, black Americans are about 13% of the nation's population, but black Americans possess less than 3% of the nation's wealth. What that translates into at the average is an $800,000 differential per black and white household. That is to say, the average black household has $800,000 less in net worth than the average white household. And I'm talking about looking at the average or the mean instead of the median, which Ryan referred to, because 94% of the wealth that is held by white households is held by white households who have a net worth above the white median. And so if we're thinking about closing the racial wealth gap, we have to think about closing it at the mean rather than at the median to absorb the full differential in the proportion of wealth that's held by the two communities. So if you were to bring the black share of wealth at least to the black share of 
the population, it would require an additional at least $10 trillion. And so the other kinds of programs or initiatives that we're talking about are not going to come anywhere close to trying to eliminate or eradicate a gap at that magnitude. And so that's why we need to turn to something like a reparations program, which is specifically aimed at building black assets to a level that would be comparable to the level of assets that are held by white Americans on average. I am uh, going to go to Twitter since we uh, got a question there. Um, uh, Cheryl wants to know if working mothers drive the economy, how has gender disparity in pay contributed to the overall wealth gap? Melissa, I feel like since you deal with gender and... Well, I mean, I think it, you know, the statistics are, are pretty obvious, right? Again, a single black woman makes a half a cent compared to a dollar. And I think that if you look at who, even in the video, I think single women in general uh, drive the economy, particularly the low-wage jobs that are the ones that are barely left since so much has moved up to technology. Um, I think what's significant is that we know 80% of financial decisions are made by women. So there's no doubt that even globally, women are the economic driver. I think it's important to be able to support that group, one, because the numbers bear it out in terms of being able to contribute to a larger, healthier economy and GDP. I think, two, they represent a growing proportion of the economy, of the country, I'm sorry, irrespective of race. Uh, and then three, those are the ones that are actually leading, guiding, nurturing, and financially responsible for the next generation. ProPublica did a documentary uh, called Left Behind uh, that looked at Dayton, Ohio, and it's a unique case study. Uh, one, not just because I know somebody is from there, but it looked at this distinction that most Americans, irrespective of race, are not doing well. But because of historical racism and segregation, there is a belief, I would argue a myth, that many white, lower, middle class have that they're doing better than they are. And there is an aspirational goal to do better than a black person, when the reality is, is that if you actually focus on single parents, you would actually help uplift the entire economy, since that consists of many of the communities, particularly those in the Rust Belt, that are completely overlooked. And in particularly, the last thing I would say is that, and it's not just proactively supporting them because of the contributions they can make, that again, historical disinvestment has caused significant trauma to those communities, both in terms of housing loss, ongoing discrimination, but as someone mentioned earlier panel, the opioid crisis, right. the, the heroin addiction, yeah. the fact that, that there is a program in Ohio to this day that is spending 25 times because babies are being born in withdrawal. And so we have to own that there are clearly issues in this country that are perpetuated and exacerbated because of race. But the majority of this country is not doing well, and the blindness because of race is actually allowing all of us to only far farther behind, except for that very lucky 10%. We touched on some of these issues very uh, briefly in, in the presidential debate last night, specifically reparations and the gaps in terms of uh, the haves and have-nots in different parts of the region and gender and race. And here's hoping we'll talk more about it moving uh, forward uh, here at Post Live and beyond. And so I want to thank you all for uh, spending time with us today, and we thank you all for coming out. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.